Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Adam Xavier McNeil, third year PhD student in the Department of History at Rutgers University. I'm delighted to have y'all listen to the conversation I had with three of my favorite historians in all the dadgum world. To say the least, January 2021 has been a wild one. Not only did we transition from the Trump era to the Biden era, An attempted coup took place in the U.S. Capitol building that attempted to disrupt the transition of power. In a moment of white supremacist terror, W.E.B. Du Bois' 1935 Black Reconstruction in America really was the book I thought appropriate to not only chat about, but see what parallels we can draw from Du Bois' text to our own. Along with the process it took to birth Black Reconstruction into the world during the Great Depression and knee-deep in the Jim Crow era. Well, I had to ring in the A-team to chat about Du Bois' gem. And so the team I assembled consists of Dr. Hillary Green, Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders, and Dr. Robert Green II. Dr. Hillary N. Green is an associate professor of History in the Department of Gender and Race Studies at the University of Alabama, and serves as the co-program director of the African American Studies program there. She also has a partial appointment in American Studies. Dr. Green's research and teaching interests include the intersections of race, class, and gender in African American history, the American Civil War, Reconstruction, Civil War memory, the U.S. South, 19th century America, and the Black Atlantic. Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders is an assistant professor of African American history at the University of Dayton. She also holds a PhD in history from the greatest program in African American history, I would like to think, in the diagram world, Rutgers University in New Brunswick, whoop, whoop, where she concentrated in African American a United States history, 
Dr. Lawrence Sanders right now teaches courses in U.S. history, historical memory, African-American history, and African-American women's history. Last, but certainly not least, my brother, Dr. Robert Green II, who is an assistant professor of history at Claflin University. Dr. Green II's research interests include African-American history, American intellectual history since 1945, and Southern history since 1945. Recently, Dr. Green also assumed the lead associate editor position of Black Perspectives, the award-winning academic blog of the African-American Intellectual History Society. So I like, I love this because uh, it means Dr. Green II is going to be editing some of my work coming out through there in this year. And help, hopefully y'all uh, enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And let me tell y'all, y'all are in for a wallop. Enjoy, y'all. All righty. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. How are we doing today? Great. Great. Excellent. Good, good. So uh, once again, thank you three for agreeing to chat with me about Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America uh, toward a history of the part which Black folk played in the attempt to reconstruct democracy in America from 1860 to 1880. And so this is a book that I consider to be really one of, if not the most important monographs ever written in American history. And so I knew I had to get together some of the dopest folks out here in Black academia, some of the brightest thinkers, but more importantly, some of, I think, some of the best people, just, just, just people out here. And so to start off our discussion of Black Reconstruction, can you tell us about your first, first experience reading and or hearing about Black Reconstruction? And, and we'll throw the baton out to you, Dr. Hillary Green. For me, graduate school, I was a MA student at Tufts University, and I just met my advisor, the late Gerald Gill, who was a member of SNCC. He also participated in many civil rights uh, movements. And then the documentarian through PBS, Eyes on the Prize, one and two, and other black um, produced Boston-based documentaries. In my first discussion, he's like, you like Reconstruction? Here's a book for you. Gave me a copy of Black Reconstruction. And like, let's talk about this in a month. And it was striking because um, my first day of graduate school was right before 9-11. So after we had this conversation and I did my second full class was 9-11 in Boston, Black Reconstruction became my work to escape from the world. And I read this thing on the green line going back and forth <laughs> from my apartment in Walden to, uh, be, uh, to BC. It was everywhere. And I devoured this and I was done within a week and I went to my, um, went back to, I'm like, let's talk about this. And for him, conversations meant peppering with questions and an hour and a half later, we only got through halfway through the book. <laughs> and I knew what I was going to write about for my master's thesis. because I saw that chapter on public schools. I'm like, this is what we got to do. So black reconstruction is one of my, is my Bible next to, been in the storm so long by Leon Whitlack that I had to copy that my mother purchased when it first came out. And then Eric Foner. Those are my three first books I looked to any topic on reconstruction. 
but Du Bois is first. Wow, uh, a week. Um, I'm I'm just gonna. That's like a mic drop in my in my eyes. My my word. Uh, oh wow. Uh, so so what about you, uh, Dr. Robert Green? Like what what about your first experience? So my first experience with Black Reconstruction in America was actually as an undergrad, um, and it was almost by sheer providence. Uh, so when I was at Georgia Southern University for my BA in creative writing, my minor was history, and I took a couple of classes in African-American history. And for our class, our professor required us to actually do one book review during the semester. They kind of pushed us to read outside the normal readings for the class. And so I'm looking at the, the book list, and I see Black Reconstruction in America. Now, at this point in my academic career, I'm just starting to get into W.E.B. Du Bois as a scholar and as a thinker. And I thought, oh, this is a Du Bois book I never heard of before. So during office hours, I go up to the professor's office and I ask him, hey, what about Black Reconstruction in America? I want to do that book for my book review. Now, keep in mind, I am, I think, just starting out as a junior in college. I don't know what the book looks like. I don't know how big the book actually is. My professor looks at me and he says, Green, are you sure you want to read Black Reconstruction in America? And me being the, the bright-eyed, bushy-tailed junior, I'm like, yeah, sure, I want to do it. He says, okay, all right, go ahead. So then I have to go to the library to actually request the book because it was in storage. It hadn't been checked out in years. And, and so I go there, I think, a day or two later to get the book. And I say, oh, I'm here to pick up Black Reconstruction America. The librarian said, sure, here it is. I look at it and I'm thinking to myself, oh, oh, okay. This is a brick. <laughs> when I, I got home, I started reading it. And from the first page, when Du Bois is talking about who he's written the book for and that he does not care if you don't believe Black people are people because the book isn't for you, I thought, oh, this is not like anything I've read before in college or in, in my entire life. By the time I got to the propaganda of history chapter, at that moment, I realized I have got to become a historian. That book probably changed my life. And that is not an exaggeration. Y'all yeah. talked about me being a... Being a preacher beforehand, that that you 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 was dropping a little some some on us there, Doctor Green. I I, I I see you there, brother. Um, so uh, what about you, uh, Doctor Ashley Lawrence Sanders? Like, what was what was your first experiences like uh, with uh, Black Reconstruction? So I first came across Black Reconstruction in America uh, in my AFAM readings class in my first semester uh, in uh, at my PhD program at Rutgers. And it was like a few weeks in, and in that class, you know, it was taught by Donna Murch, um, we had to do a presentation where we had to present on the assigned readings, which may have been one to two books. Uh, that week, it was uh, Stephen Hahn's A Nation Under Our Feet. Um, and uh, then it was, you know, you had to pick additional book, right, to also present on. So I picked uh, Tara Hunter's To Join My Freedom. And then when I was having discussion with Dr. Birch, she was like, you know what? You should also check out Black Reconstruction by Du Bois. And I was like, okay, well, I'm familiar with some Du Bois. You know, I wasn't, I didn't have a history degree from undergrad. I came in from like a political science background. So I was already kind of like nervous. Uh, this is, you know, a few weeks into grad school. 
So I was like, oh, you know, I'll check it out. Then I checked it out. And, you know, like Robert, I was like, wait a second. What do you mean just check it out? This is like a 700 page book. Um, but in the end, I started reading it. And I did not finish it that week for class, but I ended up finishing it later on. I did not, not, and there was no way I could finish it that week in order to complete it. But I finished it by the end of the semester because I actually used it in my, you know, my 19th century PDR class when I talked about reconstruction. And I was just amazed. I hadn't, at that point, had not read a history book like that. I was only familiar with, you know, kind of souls of Black folk Du Bois and not this Du Bois. Um, and this Du Bois, you know, you know, like Robert said, is so direct. Like just direct in a way that like, I think we all kind of wish we could be as, as historians and scholars all the time. Um, and so I think that when I kind of discovered that book, it really did solidify for me that I wanted to write about Civil War memory um, and I wanted to focus on this time period. And that's when I really decided that that was going to be my time period because Du Bois really proved that, you know, you can center Black people uh, in this history in a way that I had really had never really read or seen before. Yeah, like that, <laughs> that story is uh, as, as someone who has been working with uh, Dr. Merch uh, for, for a bit now, it's uh that that sounds like something Dr. Merch would would, would just say. Just, just go to the library, just go pick it up. You know, it's, it's nothing. And then you look at that big old something, and you're like, "Uh, you, you maybe maybe you could have given me like a like a little little, little note. This thing might be a little long. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it was a great. It was a great class. It was a great class. Look, amen. Dr. Merch is the truth. She she is just. Uh, amazing and it was great going through uh the comps process with her and ifam uh thank the lord i survived and so <laughs> um it, it so it's really cool to hear all of your perspectives uh not only about black reconstruction but also how you came to your own research topics as a result and so you know we're also recording this um a few weeks after the uh, u.s capitol uh, you know, effectively, there was a uh, there was an attempted coup um, on the U.S. Capitol, and so just thinking about you know Reconstruction for me, Black Reconstruction rather, you know, and, and kind of building up towards our conversation here, to me, it took on an even greater meaning and, and importance for our podcast today. Um, so, so what do you believe readers of the book and listeners to this podcast would really learn about the historical parallels? between the historical uh, moments discussed in Black Reconstruction and the current moment we find ourselves in in American history? Uh, because I'm, I've seen a lot of people discuss the parallel, so I'm interested to know what do y'all think about this particular question? And so we'll go, actually, we'll go right back to you, uh, Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders. You know, it's really interesting. I think I probably have seen references to Du Bois's Black Reconstruction more over the last year than I think I've ever seen. I don't know if that just means I'm on Twitter a lot. Maybe. But I've also <laughs> seen a lot of references to it. In particular, I, I think in, in liberal and leftist kind of, you know, academic and non-academic communities online, um, there's sort of like a renaissance of Black Reconstruction or people like pointing that out as a book to help understand this moment. 
Um, and I think it does and doesn't. I'm a little like shaky on making historical parallels as I feel like I kind of always have to be as a historian. Um, but I do think there's some wider lessons here um, about the use of violence uh, for power. Um, and, you know, this is a point I try to make to my students all the time that there is a way that violence, and I think some of the characterizations of the violence that happens a couple weeks ago uh, sort of portrayed as cartoonish or, you know, just silly or, you know, just sort of like randomized. Um, and I tell my students all the time that even the ordinary quotidian violence that we see during Reconstruction is in the service of maintaining and regaining power, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that's like one really important lesson that Du Bois just hammers home is that this is about power and capital and people who feel like they're losing power or capital or their access to power and capital and what they're willing to do for it. And racist ideologies are almost always a part of that, as we saw with the Capitol insurrection. Um, It doesn't tell the full story always, uh, and it's a complicated story. Um, Do I think we're in sort of this kind of reconstruction moment? Not quite, Uh, you know, because we we really haven't we really haven't had the like the radical reconstruction that inspired the backlash that Du Bois talks about, right? Mm. So we don't, you know, we we haven't had that moment. But I do think that, you know, the uses of violence, which sometimes seem just so, you know, so ordinary or regular, that's that's definitely um, a parallel that I see. Whew, yeah, trying to trying to think through the question about, you know, where where we sit, right? And 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 yeah, I, I have been seeing um, a lot of discussions about Black Reconstruction um, the last year, and uh, yeah. I'm also a lot on Twitter, I think. Some might think, uh, my mom may think a little too much, but uh, mom, over your ears. Um, and so uh, what about you, Dr. Dr. Green? What do you what do you think about this particular question about Black Reconstruction's uh, relevance to, our, to what we're dealing with today? For me, I think it's interesting because I started seeing a renaissance around this, around the when we got to the 150th celebration after the Civil War. Like, oh, let's do Reconstruction now because we're here. And all these anniversaries started to come up. So I, um, CLAW, which was um, uh, the low country um, um, of the world, Adam Dombey and Simon, and I'm blanking out his name at the College of Charleston had about let's bring in scholars of Reconstruction and let's reassess this and starting to talk about it. And so seeing the general strike, seeing the propaganda of history, seeing how Reconstruction has actually been the source for a lot of new scholarship on the period. But this recent event has shown, one, it's all about power and it's all about disinformation. And what happens how you can consolidate power and make it acceptable when you're talking about Black life and it can be sacrificed in such a way to sustain and achieve power. And then the use of the schools and dismantling of education knowledge that people are willing to accept lies about this period and call this period, and I agree with Ashley, it's not a radical period that inspired it, but it's something about this perceived Negro rule myth of the Obama years Mm -hmm. that allowed for people to act out, to act violently, to lash out, and to lash out in a way where 
they felt that they had the federal government behind their side, and now they're shocked that the world's like, no, you can't do this. So for me, the violence and power to restore the propaganda of history chapter, especially as members of our own academic profession have been engaged in the propaganda still, and I can name some names, but that commission's done. (laughs) Well, damn. (laughs) But it's it's a disinformation campaign over violence, power, and to sustain it. And that's why I I saw on January 6th. So for me, it went from academic circles to now Twitter to mainstream media. And why don't we know about this? Well, you don't know because there is something that people feared about this knowledge being out. Yeah, yeah, that that commission, which the number will be unnamed here. Um, And so, but no, you're you're right. And so um, it also makes you think about um, especially when you deal with the question of objectivity and the question of, you know, the role of the historian in the public discourse, Black Reconstruction got you. He got you. And he had us back in th- 1935. You know what I'm saying? So, um, so, 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 yeah, you know, it's very, very, uh, very definitely keen analysis there. And so uh, we're going to pass the baton to, to Dr. Robert Green. So what do you have, you know, in terms of your understanding of this a particular moment is connection in any way, shape, or form to Black Reconstruction in America. Sure. And I think there are two ways I really want to investigate this. Uh, number one, as was mentioned earlier, uh, there has been a resurgence on the left and in liberal circles as well of interest in Black Reconstruction, which I think is actually rather intriguing because it mirrors the interest in Black Reconstruction back during the civil rights movement and the Black power movements of the 60s and 70s when you had civil rights activists and Black Panthers alike reading Black Reconstruction, along with uh, far-left activists as well during the 60s and 70s. You think about the fact that Black Reconstruction, for instance, Memory Serves, was actually on the list of books you had to read uh, if you entered the Black Panther Party, or at least it was one of the recommended readings. Um, In addition to that, right, today, of course, in recent years, I've I've personally seen in magazines like Jacobin, Descent, and elsewhere in the nation renewed interest in Black Reconstruction, more so in terms of how it centers Black Americans in a political and intellectual narrative, and how it speaks to our current age as you see more and more people paying attention to the potential power of, say, the Black vote, and, and a motivated Black vote to turn out, especially in the Deep South. And that takes me to my second point, which is, I think, one of the interesting parallels is not so much what happened January 6th, but what happened the night of January 5th, when you had uh, two Democrats winning election in Georgia's Senate races, including Ralph Warnock, someone who is in the Ebenezer Baptist Church pulpit, the first African-American under the Senate from the Deep South. And what you have to really think about here is what someone like Senator Warnock represents, in terms of this long narrative of Black Reconstruction. In many ways, what he represents is the idea of what the boys was getting across, which is if you just gave Black people an opportunity, a fair shot to be politically active without being harassed and being violently engaged, then they would have an opportunity to send people like him to the U.S. Senate, to the U.S. House of Representatives, and perhaps even the presidency itself. And so I think what we're seeing in this moment 
of January 6th and the parallels of Reconstruction is, as Ashley and Hillary have already pointed to, is that it's not so much a direct parallel as as though it were more of an echo of these fears on the one hand and these hopes on the other hand of what Black political power can and actually will achieve. An echo. I like that. Yeah. No, that's, um, that's actually a really great way to think about it too. And I appreciate you for taking us there because I think your um, answer is also a great transition into my, uh, into my next question. And so, you know, you mentioned um, the political, um, the other part of the, the political sphere here. And so, especially in light of how we often see white liberals and conservatives come together upon the foundation of disrupting black freedom gains, what also can black reconstruction show us about how even when black folks do advance, at least politically and, and socially in certain areas, uh, we must be wary of white backlash, right? Well, what do and and we'll return this back to you, um, uh, Doctor uh, Robert Green, about what you think about this particular question, especially in light of the comments that you just made. So, so I'm interested to see what you think here. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's really interesting because there is, of course, a long history of of black advancement and and white backlash, as you've pointed out. But I think. What's what's an intriguing thing about Black Reconstruction to keep in mind is that Du Bois is making it quite clear just how special a moment this was in U.S. history and how it was the fact that most Americans allowed it to fail. Like many of them wanted to fail. Others simply didn't care about it enough to save it from failing. And he's trying to get this across to people in the 1930s at a time when during the New Deal, you're starting to see African-Americans once again assert their rights as human beings and as citizens. But what I also think is interesting to think about with Black Reconstruction and this idea of, of backlash is what if we take that idea and we flip it on its head? And I'm thinking of works like those, those of Jason Morgan Ward. Um, I'm thinking of other works that really argue that instead of thinking of backlash, we really should think of American history as being in a permanent state of white backlash and how there are certain moments of black advancement that temporarily push back against that tie with Reconstruction perhaps being the most traumatic of them all. But I think what Du Bois want, wanted his audience to understand, wants us to understand now is that, as, as Hillary mentioned a moment ago, the point of all this is being able to obtain power and hold on to it. And that's such a difficult thing to not only do, but to even fathom in an American context. And I think Du Bois certainly understood that in 1935, and we're seeing this again in 2021. It's, it's so hard to obtain that power and then to keep it beyond a number of years. Yeah, no, yeah. You're, you're very right about that one. And so just trying to think about the reframing of it, and, and, I, and I think you did are really well there. And so uh, to, kick, to kick it back to you, uh, Dr. 
uh, the other Dr. Green of, of the group. Uh, because I was actually thinking about this whole time. I was like, how am I going to address y'all? Because Dr. Green. So, so uh, 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 Brother Green and Sister Green. And we're going to okay pass. That. That, that works for me, too. That's totally fine with me. All right. Because, hey, hey we, you know, we, we, we got to make sure that we make sure everybody get their titles right. Because we don't want no. Let me let me leave that alone. And so um, we're going to go to you, uh, uh, Sister Green. Sister Green, we're going to pass the collection plate to you. One of the things I, I like that Robert uh, mentioned is that the fear and the countering of people in power and the cooperation possible, because I always think about this book as someone after living in Alabama for several years and living in Alabama and seeing grassroots efforts to counter the political climate on the ground and to be moving along their way and when they rise up, even the Jeff Sessions, the Mo Brooks, and the others respond by voter suppression tactics. And the Doug Jones is a good example of this recently. And I thought about the boys then too. This was a coalition of white, black, and diverse Alabamians who defied the odds, came together, and mobilized in response. DMVs were closed down even more. Offices for the local DNC chapter were shut down because they were successful. And it it created enough of a lash that now voter participation is the rule book. I think Georgia is is an example of what can be done. But if you look at the numbers of participation in Mississippi and Alabama recently, Georgia is not the anomaly. The rest of the nation is. Because we've been doing this in spite of and finding ways to find common ground and negotiate it in power. And it's a way to counter this white lash and this power structure that's there. And I thought about the boys because he's writing of this and it goes with my other classic book of Hammer and Ho. Mm. The role of other forms of protest and organizing that cross race, cross class, cost ethnic lines that are seen as possible in a state like Alabama, but actually existed and worked and thrived, that produced another kind of response. So for every give and take, there is something there. But I think Du Bois is also acknowledging that in the Alabama chapter and looking at what is possible in spite of all these things, if we can mobilize fully to our political advantage. Yeah, you bringing up uh, Hammer and Home makes me think about another uh, uh, an- another uh, roundtable discussion on that book. So we'll so we'll put that in. Uh, we'll, we'll throw that out in the ether and see who catches it. Uh, but 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 no, you're definitely right. Uh, thinking about um, Doug Jones and and you know Alabama um, with uh, electing him a few years back um, for for a term, and so and so yeah, it just makes you just think about what. And, and I and I will say this as someone who's convening these questions, there are times where I think you know the whole historical comparison and parallel stuff. You know, I don't. I, it gets a little janky at times, but but it, it is, I think, an important way to kind of think about, um, you know, to try to at least get people to think right with us, right? Not necessarily even against us, but think with us about um, how we can mobilize against it. And so, thankfully, we're seeing that um, on the ground now with uh, with Abrams and and. And so many other, uh, so many other folks right now on the ground, and so, um, so, so, so now I'm interested in to hearing what you have to say, Sister Lauren Sanders. 
Um, I think, you know, both Robert and Hillary made really excellent points. I think uh, Robert's point about the constant white backlash is such an important point that, you know, when we see these moments of, of black advancement, they're actually the fleeting moments. Um, and I think Hillary's like allusion to hammer and hole really made me think about, um, why, uh, Du Bois focuses so much on the white backlash, which is that it's the danger to, you know, a potential, working class or laboring class solidarity uh, between white workers and black workers, which is central to his concerns in black reconstruction. Um, and I think that, that that weariness that comes out of Du Bois is why you've seen the book really catch on in, in leftist circles um, to people who are really having these conversations about racial capitalism for the first time, along with, you know, reading black Marxism, reading Robinson uh, du Bois's Marxist analysis in this in this book is, you know, what really what I think that, you know, why you're seeing such a broad range. Like he, you know, he's discussing all elements of possible organization, right? Um, he's discussing the electoral politics. He's discussing, uh, you know, workers and laboring and unions. Um, and these are things that I think are really burgeoning movements in this country right now. As much as what we're dealing with violent backlash, we're also, you know, as Hillary pointed out, dealing with like this, this kind of great moment, I think, of, of opportunity and organizing on a broad left that we have not seen in ages. Um, and I think that that's why Du Bois really kind of speaks to that moment. Uh, he centers the Black worker in this, uh, you know, the Black worker, the actual Black working, a Black working class, a Black laboring class, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and discusses and gives us the answers to why, you know, there's so many problematic current framings around white working class, right? Um, and, you know, he gives answers in, in Black Reconstruction in a way that I think people are still seeking those answers because the conversations, at least in mainstream media outlets around this, are so shallow, um, as if, you know, there is no understanding of how Reconstruction happened and, you know, post-Reconstruction happened in the U.S. or, you know, why class solidarity isn't something that just automatically happens. The answers are in Black Reconstruction. You know, the answers are there um, to understand white backlash. You have to understand racial solidarity over class solidarity. And that's what, you know, Du Bois gives us the pathway to in Black Reconstruction. Absolutely. And that's actually an interesting way to kind of think about going back to his uh, Marxist analysis. Right. It makes me also, you know, turn to this next question about Du Bois, the man. Right. And what was what was going on? Because, right, the book was published in 1935. And so, you know, just thinking about, you know, Du Bois by 1935, obviously had written about a tremendous amount of subjects in his long career then. Obviously, he'd lived much longer from there, but, you know, his career was very long by then. Um, but why do you all think Du Bois ultimately made a turn toward a book on the Civil War Reconstruction era during the Great Depression and, and the Jim Crow era? Um, and also, how did his prior scholarship and activism ultimately set him up to write uh, Black Reconstruction? And so we'll turn it right back to you, uh, Dr. Lawrence Sanders. Well, you know, I always tell my students there's so many different Du Bois. <laughs> you know, there's like <laughs> so many different versions of, of W.E.B. Du Bois. And most students, and I think most people, like I was this person, had encountered, you know, the talented Tim Du Bois, right? Uh, so 
so like, you know, and that's kind of like for a lot of people that's, you know, who know a basic, a basic black history, that's where Du Bois ends because we can't get too much into radical Du Bois, right? Like that's, you know, so like Du Bois kind of ends there. Um, at this time in his life, I don't know if this is like right at the time when he's like now at odds again with the NAACP or he's left the, you know, left the crisis. Um, you know, he's leaning further into Marxism. He's not yet a communist, but he leads further into Marxism, which is, of course, you know, anti, you know, that's him and Walter White don't get along. Like, you know, these are these are things that are happening sort of politically in his life. I think, too, that, you know, if you like conceptualize a Du Bois who's been writing this book for a long time at this point, uh, for what I understand, it's at least a couple of decades in the works uh, when he actually does publish it. Um, you know, I've read multiple types of introductions to this one by Becker, one by David Levering Lewis, and they both sort of say that, you know, he was sort of driven by sort of the early negative responses and then the increasing number of, uh, you know, Dunning School historians who are still publishing into the 1930s to write this book. Um, and you can see the anger and the, and the anger as a direct response in the propaganda of history. Um, so it all sort of comes together where he's, you know, he's joining together his current sort of political ideologies, you know, his, you know, his beliefs in Marxism, along with, uh, you know, really trying to correct the historical method, sorry, the historical record and advancing a revision of scholarship, which is so needed at the time, um, where, you know, in the 1930s in the mainstream academy, in the mainstream white academy, uh, you know, the Dunning School is still dominating. You know, all of the sort of reviews, if you read in the Journal of Negro History at this time, all of the reviews of, you know, Civil War era reconstruction books by white historians are overwhelmingly like, this was terrible. This is bad. You know, like this, you know, black historians are being forced to really correct the record. And, you know, Du Bois, you know, he writes this whole opus to, to fully correct the record and call out everybody at the end. Oh. Look. Talking about models, we'll get to that in a little, little later. Because I'm like, if I got enough juice to be able to shoot shots like that, shoot, you, you, man, stop. You better, you better stop. <laughs> so, so no, th- this is this is this is really good. I'm, I'm, we're really getting somewhere with this conversation. So we're gonna pass, uh, we're gonna pass the plate over to uh, Dr. Hillary Green. I'm interested to know what you think about this particular question. So for me, whenever I introduce Black Reconstruction in my 19th century Black history class, or my Southern Black education history class, where I I always pair Du Bois with Anna Julia Cooper and Booker T. Washington. I always have Anna Julia Cooper's um, telegram to the boys in 1929. After she read the tragic era, it's like, you are the person to do this. You must do this. You must respond. And because of the people at the time, even she recognized he had the weight behind them that can do that. And that was in 1929. His his professional credentials, because the Black history movement, I think about him in response to this moment of the propaganda that's coming out on Civil War Reconstruction, the Dunning School for all of its ink and pages, that's what's shaping popular culture. And you can see him as the pressure on him to respond. Then he's from his 
from the own African-American intellectual community. Then you have the white professional community who rejects him despite coming from Harvard. And then he's on the house with the NAACP. But my other favorite thing is, I think he's tired of Jim Crow. And my favorite other piece I give to my students when I introduce them to Black Reconstruction is when he tries to go on vacation and he writes about it in the crisis of all the Confederate monuments that he's seeing, all the Jim Crowism that he's seeing. And he's just trying to go on vacation. <laughs> that anger, that indignity, that weight is wearing on him. Where by the time he gets here, he is correct. He is not speaking to the profession because the profession doesn't want him. And that this is his, fine. I'm writing my book my way. I got another audience. Deal with it. And that arrogant Du Bois is what I love about him. Not the polite one, but even my students at the talented tent Du Bois. By the time they get to that, they're like, okay, maybe we thought wrong about him. Look, look, I, I love the way, look, see, I told y'all, look, ain't I told y'all, ain't I told y'all that I assembled the, the, the Avengers team, the, the best team, the A team to talk about this. Now let me kick it to Robert Green. Brother, what do you think about this particular question of Civil War Reconstruction and why Du Bois made this particular turn? I think it's it's definitely true that he does this partially because, as Hillary and Ashley have already pointed out, he's living in a United States that is so thoroughly imbued with lost cause ideology that you can't escape it. And what's funny about this is in my U.S. history survey of the 20th century, I will actually talk about Black Reconstruction in America and put it in conversation with Gone with the Wind, which... The novel comes out in 1936, and then the movie comes out in 1939, has its world premiere in Atlanta. And I can't help but think about the fact that Du Bois, writing this book a few years before that, is trying to tell the country, hey, look, the Reconstruction and Civil War stories that most of you like to tell yourselves are simply not true. And again, I think it's especially important, as everyone else has mentioned this, this afternoon, that Du Bois was writing very much in the tradition of Black historians, trying to tell the country this is what actually happened in the Civil War and Reconstruction periods. But in addition to that, I think the timing is so interesting because, as, as Ashley pointed out a moment ago, what he's also writing about is this tension between the, the propertied and non-property classes in American society. And I think that's a timely thing to think about during the Great Depression, when you're already seeing in the United States a resurgence of leftist activism, a resurgence of the Communist Party, especially not only in the Deep South. And Du Bois is saying, you know, when he writes that Reconstruction, he mentions that counter-revolution of property at the end of Reconstruction. In a sense, he's saying this is what got us to where we are right now. If we had taken care of business during the Reconstruction period, not just in terms of Black freedom, but in terms of worker freedom, then perhaps we could have avoided some of the problems we have right now in the 1930s. But it certainly makes sense that Du Bois was the man who wrote this book, Black Reconstruction, because he was the one who had the scholarly heft and notoriety to actually pull it off. 
Yeah. 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 No, you're right. But just trying to think about the the different people that, you know, could have written it and and all of y'all are right. Just thinking about the particular political moment. Um and who had the juice? Du Bois certainly had the juice. And, and as uh, Dr. Hillary Green said, he, when Du Bois is walking around around there with that swagger, look, ain't couldn't who who like ain't nobody else could do that. You know what I'm saying? It almost just makes me think about uh, you know going again to like contemporary examples. Just thinking about someone like you know Dr. Gerald Horn. When we're all looking on every every two days, we're like. Uh, this this brother done did it again another he going from he going from 20th century 19 18 17 6 it's like he's running down the football field but he next thing we know he gonna do something about jesus or something like that like who knows like this brother is is, is just on another planet this brother's on another planet and so you know we, we talked a lot about uh the propaganda of history chapter uh, which is the, the the bookend chapter, and for for those who don't know, this is one of my favorite parts of it. I'm I'm going to read it. Um, he, uh, du Bois says three fourths of the temp, uh, of the testimony rather against the Negro in Reconstruction is on the unsupported evidence of men who hated and despised Negroes and regarded it as loyalty to blood, patriotism to country, and filial tribute to the fathers to lie steal or kill in order to discredit these black folk this may be a natural result when the people have been humbled and impoverished and degraded in their own life but what is inconceivable is that another generation and another group should regard this testimony as scientific truth when it is contradicted by logic and by fact this chapter therefore which in logic should be a survey of books and sources becomes of sheer necessity an arraignment of American historians and an, an indictment of their ideals. End quote. My Lord. So like, you know, Dr. 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 Hillary Green was like saying like she, 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 she was, you know, she was about to name drop some of those commission historians. So I'm, I'm, I'm about to kick it to, to the Du Bois folk, you know, to the folks that Du Bois was trying to kick at. What historians were Du Bois calling out? And what does the need for him to do so about this pipe dream of objectivity many historians ballyhoo about in seminar methods classrooms around the station? What what does ultimately this all mean in terms of our understanding of objectivity? But also, let's let's get a little let's get a little in the grime real quick. Who's who's this brother talking about? For the people who don't know, in the back, and we'll kick it back to Dr. Robert Green. Well, he's he's primarily talking about many of the members of the Dunning School, uh, the, the the School of Historiography out of Columbia University, um, which really set forth for the entire country what the Civil War and Reconstruction periods were about in the early 20th century. Setting aside, you know, everything else, what they're saying is, hey, the Civil War was about states' rights. It was about the federal government going too far, and Reconstruction showed that the federal government erred in giving black men the right to vote in making black people citizens and the like. But the thing about what Du Bois is writing against in this time period is not just that the Dunning School is so overwhelming in terms of its influence on the historical profession. It is, I think, with the exception of the black American community at that time, it was accepted virtually as gospel for most Americans. It's just simply what they assumed 
the Civil War and Reconstruction were about. And you see this, of course, as I actually mentioned, in the popular culture of the day, from the birth of a nation in 1915 through Gone with the Wind in 1939. Um, so much American popular culture at that time was imbued with this idea. And so Du Bois is, is calling out the historians, the folks from the Dunning School, and, and really most historians, period, to make this point. But I, I want to say just one very quick thing. I don't want to distract from your question. But I, I do also want to point out that other Black historians before Du Bois were also saying folks are getting Reconstruction wrong. Um, I, I think of John Roy Lynch, um, who in 1913 or so wrote a book called The Facts of Reconstruction, where he's saying, hey, I was actually there. I was in Mississippi this entire time and I saw what was going on and you guys are getting it wrong at Columbia. And so Du Bois is also writing in that same tradition, this black historical tradition of saying, hey, wait a minute now, this is actually not what Reconstruction was about. This is not what the Civil War was about. But by 1935, it was just taken as basically gospel. Thank you for taking us there because, you know, you know, I, I know you got that knowledge, brother. So, so, so I appreciate you for dropping it on us. So, so if you got to divert real quick, I appreciate it. Um, because you're right, you know, uh, Lynch was definitely, uh, definitely there. And so it also just shows that, you know, even when someone does write this big, you know, monumental book, that there were other people that, uh, were very much writing as well about this too. Um, and so thank you again for bringing us there. And so we'll, we'll kick it to, uh, Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders to get, to get your, uh, your, your, your thoughts on this particular question as well. Uh, so I agree with Robert. Like there's there's clear clear direct path. I mean, he talks specifically about Dunning and Burgess, Eric Phillips. He talks about Claude Bowers. Like he names them out. You know, names names and shames, as I like to say, uh, in this chapter uh, with his callouts. Um, I also think that it's very interesting that you know what, what Robert said is true. Is that you know this is a this is a movement with power, right? You know, it's a movement that has has legs. It is absolutely what people believe about the Civil War and Reconstruction during this time period outside of largely African-Americans and a small group of other people. Um, so there's a shared kind of frustration in this chapter about what, you know, the quote unquote unbiased historians are. And you asked this question about how we hear about objectivity. I think happily, you know, we hear less about that now. Uh, you know, about this idea, though I do think there are, a, you know, a decent amount of people in our profession um, who think that, you know, history is some, you know, this unbiased field that's going to be the neutral arbiter of, of facts in the future. History will judge, history will judge. And I'm like, as a historian who studies history and the history of his, how do, how could I actually ever say that? Um, I've seen how history has judged. Um, even in my lifetime, you know, that, you know, people will, will have history rewritten about them. They'll be given the positive narratives, the redemptive narratives. Um, the idea that, you know, these historians were just sort of putting aside the facts. I think what Du Bois absolutely says here, um, in actually a field of academic history, when you think about it, that is not that old in, you know, in the United States at this time. Um, he says, actually, the facts are not what you're doing. What you're doing is propaganda. And that's a direct challenge to the field of history. It's a call out to the entire field that, you know, you're not doing facts. You're doing politics and propaganda unsupported by facts. 
uh, to the service of actually bolstering white supremacy in the country. Uh, and the rewriting of the history of, of the Civil War and of Reconstruction and the amount of just amount of time that, you know, Black historians have to spend during this time period. You know, I mentioned the Journal of Negro History. Literally so many reviews just, you know, actually setting aside the actual factual errors in these works um, and the problems with the analysis of this work is doing that academic reviewing job, right? So Du Bois, because he has a juice, can come out and just say all of these things, right? <laughs> like, this is the sum up of the type of work and scholarship that you've seen some of the Black historians put forward, you know, in the first couple of decades of the Journal of Negro History. They're reading these works. They're, they're you know, critiquing these works at the same time. Um, and Du Bois is saying, you know, objectivity, you know, this doesn't exist in this field, right? This is not, you know, this is not a thing. You know, this is what happens when you let the people who believe Black people are inferior write that into their histories. Indeed, indeed. And so once again, y'all see why I assembled this dream team of scholars to drop all the knowledge on us. Like th- this is all important for us. And and for the note takers, as my pastor would say, I hope you take really good notes now, especially for those in the future who are going to be taking uh, exams, i.e. me. Um, and so, uh, Dr. Hillary Green, what, what are your thoughts on this particular question about objectivity and, and, and Du Bois laying out, you know, the laying out the gauntlet on these people and knocking them upside their heads? What do you think about that? For me, I like the question of objectivity. How can you be objective if the archives you are using were created to sustain and promote propaganda? And I'm thinking about James DeRock Hamilton and the, um, and the North Carolina State Archives, the Alabama State Archives that just apologized for its collection <laughs> practices, Mississippi Department of Archives and History. Well, they exist at a moment. So these Dunning School scholars are already using collections that are purposely designed to prop up white supremacy. They are supported and getting travel funds by the UDC and other <laughs> lost cause organizations. And then also too, institutions of higher ed that don't have any diversity and okay for using this history and scholarship to sustain them being white-only spaces. So how can you be objective? And if the facts aren't the facts, it's cherry picked and you're using for a political arm to get your notoriety and to say to African-Americans, you're because the, I call it um, identity politics. You're black. You won't know. But we great white men can do this and some women. So these are intellectual juggernauts of the field who have allowed this, not just the Dunning schools, but I'm thinking about the beards. I'm thinking about all periods of American history. Mm. So they claim and hide behind objectivity when knowing quite well it's all about power, identity, and maintaining white supremacy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one who, you know, I've been in graduate school. I guess uh, I started, was it Simmons College in 2015? So I've been in graduate school going on six years. And so Lord knows I've heard you know, the, the, the question about objectivity come up uh, quite frequently um, in, in a myriad of different spaces. And so, um, you know, it's always great to, to engage with people who, um, at least on this particular question of objectivity in, in, in our inquiry of history, that uh, we, we land on the same side. Um, but uh, speaking of landing on the same side, 
well, black hair construction was not seen like we see now as a phenomenal book. And so it may be considered a great book now, but that love was not reflected via wide readership and even review until long after Du Bois left the United States for Ghana and died just before the March on Washington. So in y'all, in, in, in your professional opinion, everyone, why did it take so long for Du Bois's interpretations, you know, like this general strike that he discussed about at length, to be taken seriously throughout the academy? And so we'll go right back to you, Dr. Hillier Green. I think this is going back to the power of the Dutton School. They control who reviews what, who gets to shape knowledge, but they also control all those negative reviews. They also control the buy-in power by large institutions in power. So it was kind of like it was blacklisted by the American profession. And at this time in the Great Depression, who among HBCUs and other communities can afford to buy a book of this nature when they're just trying to eat? So for me, I think the negative reviews is a part of the larger Dunning School uh, machine to push against anything that challenges their authority and their power. And for so that, I think it takes the, the generation of the civil rights era and post to really reassess this as people are starting to question the American structures that were built upon white supremacy from the academy to uh, Main Street. And our new generation of people may be questioning what they were told and what they learned as truth and what they were trained under. And so I think that's why it came back, but it came back because the nation started to change more so than the profession changed. Interesting. No, no, that, that's, that's very true. Thinking about the nation changing as opposed to academy, the academy. So I'm, I'm going to sit on that. I'm, I'm going to sit with that a little bit. I, I really appreciate that, uh, Dr. Green. Um, so, so, for, so for this one, I, I'm going to kick it to Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders to get your thoughts on this particular question about why it took so long for... Du Bois' interpretations to to land for for many folks throughout the academy. Yeah, I think it is about about the nation changing and sort of the profession changing with it. Um, when I read contemporary reviews of Black Reconstruction, you know, when I was working on my dissertation, I noticed that you know it was it was reviewed by you know quite a few academics, you know, quite a few white Southerners uh, <laughs> historians had things to say. Um, you know, even some, you know, some black historians had things to say because, you know, Du Bois's uh, formulation of a Marxist analysis was not very popular among black historians either. Uh, you know, the fact that he was, you know, focusing on this, uh, uh, you know, the Civil War as a general strike um, and his language about, you know, class and laborers and, and, you know, capitalists wasn't necessarily what people wanted to hear, or sorry, wanted to read uh, in a history. Right. So, you know, a lot of people saw it as Du Bois' politics leading his his work. But I think Hillary is right that we see, you know, in the civil rights movement, the black power movement, when people are looking back to kind of, you know, see these moments of a history that can kind of explain that has a clear sort of political eye um, and is kind of prescient for its time. Right. Like it's it's looking, you know, it's it's, you know, it's beyond its time in a lot of ways. It's written in a particular uh, context, but it's beyond its time. We see really people pick it up when people are trying to understand, you know, these sort of issues when they're bigger sort of activist movements, you see the popularity happening. And then when we get a field of history where we actually have more black historians 
you know, really looking at black centered narratives of the of reconstruction and, you know, black centered histories of the Civil War. That's when you're starting to see Du Bois also uh, in black reconstruction becoming more uh, more relevant. You know, by the time we get to the, you know, the 60s, 70s and beyond and much farther beyond now, um, it kind of has to change. Like, you know, there, you know, we don't get, you know, more black academics until we get, you know, black student movement, uh, you know, the black campus movements. We don't get, you know, the, the radical element of Du Bois until we actually have radical elements of people who want to read <laughs> Du Bois. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, that kind of goes along with what I was saying earlier about. Uh, why Du Bois is sort of, you know, having this other moment right now um, is that, you know, we're in one of these other moments where people want this sort of clear eyed, uh, direct message and a really sort of broad interpretation of the past um, in a way that's meaningful for understanding the present. And I'm glad that you brought up the Black campus and the the Black uh, camp, really the Black campus movement of the of the 60s that, you know, revolutionized and really changed uh, American campuses throughout the nation, um, because that really catalyzed, at least provided some great foundation for uh, later study and, 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 and involvement of uh, black reconstruction in, in, in classrooms. And so um, I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this, uh, uh, Robert Green, Dr. Robert Green. You know, that's it's really interesting to think about how black reconstruction was perceived, because uh, to, to piggyback off of Hillary's and Ashley's points about this, what I think is funny about the reception of Black Reconstruction was that one of the more hostile groups of the book was actually Black Marxists. Um, <laughs> like Abram Harris were, were saying, oh, you know, Du Bois' Marxism was incredibly crude. It wasn't well done. They felt that it showed that Du Bois simply didn't grasp the basics of Marxist ideology, which is especially interesting when you if you look back at what Du Bois was doing at Atlanta University in the 1930s, He's having classes with his students about Marxism. They're reading uh, Das Kapital together. They're, they're doing these things where you can see him slowly but surely building up his own understanding of Marxism as an ideology and as a methodological tool with which to understand America's past. Now, with that being said, I, I do want to recommend one reading for, for folk, well, not just one, but I think in terms of thinking about the reception of the book, there's a really good article in the journal Book History from 2009. Um, it's by a woman named uh, Claire Parfait, and it's titled Rewriting History, the Publication of W.E.B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction in America. And there she actually gets into the reception of the book, but also the process through which the book had to go through to get published. Because to Hillary's point, the publisher at the time was saying, we're not so sure folks will buy a book that's, that's this long during the Great Depression. It's not quite the readable text as other popular history books were in the 1930s. And so they were they were concerned about how it was written, how it'd be received. But at the same time, they understood this is W.B. Du Bois. Let's go ahead and get this published. Um, I do think, though, again, thinking about how the book would later be received, everyone's exactly right. By the 60s and 70s, it seems the country is ready for Black Reconstruction in America and I would add, not just because of the politics of the day, but also because of the growth of Black history as well. By the 60s, you've got folks like Lerone Bennett, for example, John Hope Franklin, many others, who are writing popular works that are also saying, hey, Reconstruction was actually a good thing that was killed, that was murdered, basically, by American society. 
And so you think about what Lerone Bennett's writing in Ebony Magazine in the 60s. How he has a series of articles about the Reconstruction period running in the most popular black magazine in the country. Again, I think that pushed people to look and look back on Black Reconstruction America with new eyes and to realize that this interpretation of Reconstruction was an incredibly valuable one. And and I'm glad as well that you brought up the popular histories of of, of Black uh, Americans looking at looking at Bennett and, and and John Hope Franklin because I think the the question of how the how the book gets made I think is also very important in terms of production, in terms of scale, in terms of, you know, uh, economy, right? Looking at, you know, the Great Depression and and also thinking about the the long arc of, you know, who comes in after to discuss works like, you know, Du Bois and others. Um, and so, and also thank you for the recommendation. We're always loving, you know, book recommendations and article recommendations here on New Books in African American Studies. And so, uh, uh, Dr. Green, your discussion also is a great segue to my next question, which is what should not be forgotten as well, obviously, is that Black Reconstruction was written during the Great Depression uh, era and also under the boot of Jim Crow segregation. What did Du Bois face traversing archives to ultimately write Black Reconstruction? So so let's get into literally the meta aspect of the, the book's creation here. So we'll kick it back to you, Dr. Robert Green. You know, that's that's a great question to really think about, because it's very easy to ignore the process of, of doing research for these kinds of books. But as Hillary already pointed out, by the way, you think about the fact that black historians during this time period faced many, many troubles in trying to go to archives just to get into archives and view material that they needed. And, you know, in, in Black Reconstruction America, Du Bois even admits up front, he's like, look, a lot of this is not based off of, of primary source research. A lot of it's based off of secondary source research. But part of his argument is he doesn't really need to prove his point using archives because so much information is readily available. And he's trying to basically, and, and to take a popular phrase, he is actually using the master's tools to rebuild the master's house. He's saying, hey, the secondary sources are actually pretty plentiful in what, what they say and what they don't say. I can't go to these archives. I'm not allowed to go to these archives. I'm going to have to get creative with how I write this particular book. And it's a really great way to also think about the fact that the the same scourge that brought about the end of Reconstruction is the same thing that inhibits him from even being able to physically go to these archives, right? So, so that's actually a great um, uh, point about that. So um, I'm, in, I'm very interested to see what, what your thoughts are on this particular question about uh, how effectively this book got made. And, and we'll kick this to uh, Dr. Lawrence Sanders. Yeah, I think Robert's points are really good is that, you know, the difficulty of traversing archives is someone like something I couldn't even imagine. And then there were critiques of Du Bois for like, not having as many primary sources or adding in too much narrative or relying a little bit too much on quotations, um, you know, too long quotations, I think is something that, you know, Charles Wesley actually said to black historian about his, uh, about black reconstruction. And I think, you know, one of the things I always notice is that Du Bois relies very heavily, especially in his chapters on the civil war, by histories written by earlier Black historians. Mm -hmm. um, and that's like such an important connection 
Um, you know, he relies a lot on Joseph Wilson's Black Phalanx, on George Washington Williams' uh, History of the Negro Troops in the American Rebellion, uh, you know, two really important early uh, Black histories of the Civil War that were written in the 1880s and 1890s. So he goes way back, you know, to like mm-hmm. the first history books written about, uh, you know, a Black Civil War uh, to actually, you know, base his sources. And, you know, he he has some newspaper sources. He quotes a lot, you know, particularly from white uh, publications uh, to talk about the attitudes of planters and, and the attitudes of, of white people in the South. Um, but I can only imagine the challenges of writing a type of book that's actually trying to revise you know, and Hillary pointed this out so well earlier, the archives themselves that exist are racist and they're based in white supremacy. We've seen the apologies over the last year. So these are archives that were constructed for the specific purpose of upholding white supremacy. You know, the creation of state-based archives, the creation of these archives were created to perpetrate a particular narrative. So for Black scholars working during this time period, you know, we talk about working against the archive or reading against the archive. They're really reading against the archive, right? <laughs> like they're they're originating this this practice long before it sort of becomes part of our, our way to talk about writing Black history, um, mm-hmm. because they're trying to find uh, and and center a Black narrative in an archive that's inherently hostile to it. Um, and for me, you know, and and you know, hearing how this is sort of this is a commonplace understanding now, I don't think we actually think enough about. Um, how early, you know, the early Black history movement and early Black scholars, you know, had, you know, the most sort of violent and hostile archives to deal in. And even though from there, you know, they found the sources um, that they needed to center, they, to center Black folks in their stories. And I think that's, you know, absolutely what Du Bois does, even if he had to reach back to, to George Washington Williams to do so. And it also makes me think about now as histories. Um, of Reconstruction or obviously written in a Civil War and Reconstruction era are, are written every year. And the question of are people even to go even back further than Du Bois, like someone like uh, George Washington Williams, right? Are people even citing him in discussions about Civil War Reconstruction, especially as, and, and we're going to talk about this before about tradition, specifically because uh, uh, centering yourself in a tradition has particular requirements. And one of them being citing those from the long tradition, right? So so, so I, I really appreciate you, Dr. Lawrence Sanders, for, for bringing that to, to, to bear here. Um, and, and so and, and for, uh, to close out this particular question, we're going to kick it to Dr. Hillary Green. Well, thank you so much. Because one of the things that I I like that Du Bois actually acknowledges the archival challenges and what he had to do. And we forget that some of these early books published long quotations to co- because people couldn't travel to those archives or they'll publish separate books from the book that they wrote of their sources. So if that's the basis of how you can travel and write this history and you're relying on, on that because you physically can't go into a space, is a way, even that acknowledgement of what he was doing, I think for Du Bois, the man and the scholar, he's also acknowledging the limitations of his work in a real way. And so for my students who want, I always have to remind them of the process of creation and what he had to go through or could not go to 
to do this book, but yet produce something masterful. So for me, I wonder, I know myself going into these collections and archives, how do you write a history if you can't get access to the material? How do you even, and but not stop from even writing that book, but to continue and press on. So I'm appreciative of him showing his sources because I look at it this way as He's giving ammunition to people on the ground to challenge those UDC and white supremacists in their neighborhoods whose mm-hmm. libraries might not have any of these other books for them. So those long quotes become weapons in my mind. And his frailties is saying like, I'm like you, I'm having the same problems, but let me help you out. So it's kind of a building of another movement to help. Here's the start with here go to your community, but at least give you some tools to go back in to fight. And that's important. Just thinking about the different tools that we have to, to fight um, the different fights that we, that we, that we do. And I, so I'm, I'm super duper interested to hear um, about how you uh, use that in some of your own work that, that I've uh, seen, at least in talks that you've given out like the Southern and, and other spaces, for instance. So, uh, you know, just wait on that because I'm super duper interested to know about that. Um, and, and so, you know, as we turn toward our, our final set of questions here, uh, I want to know since, you know, if, since listeners to New Books and African American Studies are, are to- like totally, un- are, are totally aware rather uh, about my love of learning about pedagogy and how people use books. So, you know, if you all use Black Reconstruction in your uh, course syllabi by the, um, Civil War and Reconstruction era, if you actually, if you do do that, because I know, you know, there are, the book is big, but I, I'm very interested in, in if you do, and if so, how do you use such a big book like this in your class? Because the people need to know, like, the people need to know how, how do we use the, the, this brick in, in, in the green, in, in the, in the uh, Robert Green, the, the, the second uh, 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 words, right? This big old brick, how do we use it in class, y'all? The people need to know. And so we'll kick it back to uh, Dr. Hillary Green. So I actually teach this book, and um, my grad students probably hate me, but I teach this book to them because I make them read the whole book. And I do it over three, two sessions minimum for a seminar or three hour. And if I do a two session one, I'll give them the first half of it. And then when we get down to the black proletariat, that Mm. will start the second time. And I would divide those three chapters. I'll split up the class and have parts of the class deal with those three chapters. And then we go to the rest together. And I always start off with it. I'm like, you're going to hate me, but you need to be able to read this to understand the other books that we're about to read about Reconstruction. Because they're responding to him, or he's responding, vice versa. Mm-hmm. By the, they hate me in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> but by the time we get to the propaganda of history, like, yes, they're screaming, like, yes, let's read, let's go forward, let's get on, and then they're okay. And I, so for me, it starts the class on Reconstruction. It does not end the class <laughs> on the gotcha. Gotcha, and, gotcha. And a general, if I did this undergrad, I have taught the general strike chapter, the founding of public schools, and then the 
propaganda of history all the time. I give them the chapters. We have I have yet to have a class where I was able to teach undergrads the entire book. I mm-hmm. broke it up for them. That they know of it. I bring the book to class. I drop it on the onto the the desk. I'm like, this is your book. And I just let it drop. So they can hear the sound of the book hitting the desk. <laughs> Look, I, I love it. Hey, let's talk about this chapter now and go from there. <laughs> oh my gosh that 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 is so that is so cool i love it um you know it, you know i might not have you know i might be like robert you know thinking like dang uh did i make the right book review choice here but but like like you showed by the end you're you're totally for it so uh so so we're so we're gonna kick it to uh dr robert green to get your uh to get your like the way that you use this book in your classroom um, and, and even maybe ways of thinking about how you can do it in the future with uh, it being Zoom world for, for at least at least another maybe semester. Yeah, so I generally tend to assign a handful of chapters from the book for various classes, um, primarily for three classes. I'll assign parts of the book for Civil War and Reconstruction. That's a senior mm-hmm. level seminar. Um, I'll also assign in particular chapters on South Carolina for my history of South Carolina class. And I'll assign the propaganda of history for my historian's craft class because I try to use that class to get students to understand why history actually matters. And what I find is that when students read that chapter in particular, it suddenly clicks for them that what we do in the classroom and what historians do in our books, our articles, our public talks, and so forth, actually does make a difference in society. And so I I try to use Black Reconstruction. I I don't use the entire book, but I use parts of it to illustrate different lessons, not just in terms of history, but even historiography for my students to to understand and to grasp and to remind them that, hey, what Du Bois is writing against is this, this, and this. And that's important, too, uh, because, you know, thinking about the history of South Carolina and, you know, obviously thinking about even some of my own work with the uh, Color Conventions movement, and thinking about like all of the conventions that even happened within the latter half of um, the 19th century, he discusses uh, some of them at length as well. And so as a Floridian, I'm totally interested in his discussion about uh, like Josiah Wells and and the different uh, black um, uh, legislators uh, during during the Reconstruction era too. So so it's and it's also good to also hear about. Um, more local hi- or, or more state histories um, that that folks do in terms of their classrooms. So that's actually a good way to think for for even teachers and and uh, and instructors alike here too. So um, so now we're going to go to Dayton. We're going to go to Dayton, Ohio, right fast, and to hear about what uh, Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders has to, has to say about this particular question. Sure. I mean, I I do not teach grad students. I don't assign the whole thing, but I would if I could. To be honest. Um, and students would dislike it, I'm sure. Uh, but I do assign parts of it. Um, you know, I actually, you know, I when I taught Civil War memory, I had them read uh, the chapter on the general strike and the chapter, uh, you know, the propaganda of history. Uh, in my AFM classes, and I teach AFM one and two, which kind of cuts off, uh, you know, at the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and picks up in AFM two. I teach Reconstruction in both those classes. Um, so propaganda of history is in there also back towards slavery. Um, I've occasionally have taught parts of the counter revolution of property, uh, because Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, especially in my, my early FM class, and I really lean into this history of, of slavery and capitalism in that class, 
and understanding the modification. And I think that um, understanding why there's such a push against Black rights being also about control of Black labor um, and reasserting control of Black labor is something that I, get, I try to get students to understand uh, the linkages pre and post Civil War and, and the need to control Black labor. Um, the students in the propaganda, when they read the propaganda of history, they're always like so shocked um, because he's so direct and you know so you know so counter to what you read now when historians shade each other. You know, they're, you know, <laughs> they're fairly polite about it, you know, fairly compared to back then, which is so funny about all these conversations about civility and everything. And I always like, we were a lot less civil back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's like a directness to it that shocks them. And I often do it in concert with teaching them about the lost cause um, and about the dangers of the lost cause and how, how, you know, the reason why, and they tell me all the time, they don't learn about reconstruction in school. And that there's a reason for that and that, you know, the teaching of reconstruction was this way and it's slowly changing to, to this way. Right. Um, and then there's a reason why they've only learned bits and pieces of this history um, because it challenges a lot of, of a lot of the narratives in this country. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to, to hopefully hearing more about. Um, you know, down the line when you're hopefully able to teach some grad students to see kind of how you would how you would do that um, as well. And so um, it, it also makes me just think about the different ways that uh, a book can be used. Right. Because the thing about it is, right, a book that large, if you read it all at once, obviously is a whole lot. But there is a way that you can just kind of it, it, it's a smorgasbord of just so much that you can choose from. It's like a buffet, the kind of thing that will not be in this post COVID world, because buffets been around on people no i'm straight um so on another note but um but actually you're uh dr lawrence sanders your discussion actually brings up is a great segue to actually getting to historiography currently um so once again i brought y'all on here i assembled y'all on to this platform to discuss this monumental book but also as a reason to 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 talk about really what remains relatively unexplored in civil war and reconstruction historiography, right? Where, where, where does the field go from here? As we're in the first month that we're leaving the first month of 2021. So we're going to kick it back to Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders here to, to get your thoughts. Oh, wow. Well, um, as I think both of you and Robert alluded to, I think a lot more state and local studies need to be done about reconstruction. Um, you know, I don't think that there, there are some places that are sort of more underexplored than others. Um, there's a way that, you know, reconstruction is sort of the concluding point in some of these histories that's problematic, uh, particularly mm-hmm. when you think about the history of, of, of South Carolina and the history that, you know, I get it. I got as a South Carolinian. Um, I think that more sort of social histories that focus on uh, black laborers in the South, uh, during this time period, I think we have, you know, I would never say we have enough, but we we do talk a bit about the politics of of Reconstruction quite a bit. Um, you know, the political leaders and, you know, the elite leaders. But I, you know, I want to, as a, a person who's a Black Southerner, I want to read more about what people like my family were up to. You know, right. to be frank, uh, you know, people who were, you know, Black, you know, rural people, agricultural minded people. Um, that had some land, not everybody had land, like, you know, like the lives of these people were complicated. 
You know, some of the more high minded political disputes didn't necessarily meet them. But, you know, they were there resisting, um, you know, the Jim Crow era during Reconstruction. Many of them were voting for the first time. You know, I know that many of my ancestors voted for the first time uh, in Reconstruction. So what that was like for, you know, you know, a, a man who was formerly enslaved and was it was largely illiterate. Um, I think that, you know, we do need more social histories of that time period uh, for the Civil War, more black centered Civil War anything. (laughs) I know Hillary will say that too, like more black centered civil war, anything, um, that, you know, that, that centers the stories of black people, you know, not just black military, but black enslaved people during the war, which is really, you know, why I appreciate the Volia glimpse, uh, more, you know, more recent book that talks about, uh, women and, you know, has this great, you know, great research into black women in particular in the war, um, you know, I think, you know, there's, there's so many avenues to go with it, but I think that there's, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about the, the politics and I want to see more of the people, you know, as, as one of my professors would have said. <laughs> Amen to that. Amen to that. And so, uh, kicking it down to, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, we're gonna, we're gonna check out that brother, Dr. Robert Green real quick. What, what, what do you have to, what, what do you think about where we need to go in terms of, uh, a field? I do agree that focusing more on local and state issues during the Civil War Reconstruction eras would be a good way for us to do this. And I can actually think of one in particular. And I, I, I know that a lot has been written about South Carolina, but I think in particular, thinking about items like the Land Commission that was here in the 1870s and 1880s, and looking at that as a reflection of how far the state government of South Carolina went to actually try to help recently freed Black people in the Reconstruction period would be interesting to look at. I would also say, I I think Reconstruction, we're seeing more historians like Heather Cox Richardson um, and and many others who are starting to make this point that Reconstruction really goes beyond the 1865 to 1877 timeframe. But I think what's really interesting is that it also depends on the state. I think for some Southern states, Reconstruction lasts for a longer time period than it does for others. Again, of course, thinking about South Carolina here. So I think extending that that temporal frame that we're using here and really digging deeper into what, as Ashley was pointing out, what were the everyday lives like for what we call, quote unquote, everyday people during the Reconstruction period. Amen. And, and, and both um, Dr. Lawrence Sanders and, and Dr. Green, Dr. Robert Green's points bring me to even someone, you know, who I know, uh, it was actually the first person's panel that I ever went to in my entire academic life. Shout out to the Graduate Association of African American History Conference at, at the University of Memphis back in 2016. He was a grad student at the University of Maryland College Park, but he is now a professor of history at, or assistant professor of history at the University of, of uh, Tennessee, Knoxville. Shout out to that brother, Dr. Robert uh, uh, Bland as well. That brother, that's a good brother right there. And so looking forward to his work. Um, uh, you know, he had a, a piece out in uh, Muster as well recently that was really good. Um, and so uh, in terms of, you know, local histories and also um, South Carolina histories as well of Reconstruction, he was, was one of the first names I thought of. So I want to shout out to you, uh, Big Bro. Um, and so going back to South Carolina, we're or North Carolina, we're actually going to kick it to Dr. Hillary Green to get Ooh, I'm just, I'm just, I'm, ooh, I'm just excited just to get what you, what you're thinking about right here, Dr. Green. So I'm gonna kick it to you. All right, I'm gonna start with the Civil War because that's where the general strikes. We just think war on black life, 
and and I will say this as someone uh, with family from central Pennsylvania who date back there from as free people and rural farmers in the middle of the state of Pennsylvania. Can we go beyond Philadelphia, New York, (laughs) Boston, and talk about the Black rural experience of the North and what these farmers did and how their lack of rights and also um, what happened after the Civil War with them in Reconstruction. Because when we look at that, what's going on in these rural communities, you think that the South was much more of a revolution compared to their conservative lives they went back to very little change. But more importantly, Black women at the home front of the North, um, Black leaders, Black women who served in the military in the war itself, not just as nurses and um, spies like Harriet Tubman, but what about the women who are following their, their spouses because they can't afford to eat and that's so they have to follow their families for food? Mm-hmm. Can we talk about them? And one thing I was, we do not need any more books of Abraham Lincoln. We don't need anything about the big men. We need the everyday folk. <laughs> That's what we need. Now, Reconstruction, we need state and local studies. And we need state and local studies, not so much of politics. I, th- I agree with Ashley. We have politics. What about the schools, the churches, but the fraternal organizations like the Masons, the Odd Fellows? And these other communal life, but then also leisure. I still go back to To Joy My Freedom by mm-hmm. Tara Hunter. And I'm like, mm-hmm. and going back to my South Carolina side who had juke joints. What about those juke joints? What are they doing for leisure <laughs> out in James Island, John's Island, the low country? Where, how are they enjoying life? So... That is something I would like to see more of and also to overturn some states that haven't been in counties that haven't been overturned and they're still reliant on early Black histories that were written in the 30s and 40s. They need updated. The other is temporal. And I agree with Robert. Some Reconstruction period ended earlier. Others went go much longer. And if you do local studies and Um, state studies, you can move the chronology accordingly to place. Let the people on the ground speak for when the right time to end. But 1877 is not sufficient anymore. I told y'all, see, this is, I I deliberately had Dr. Hillary Green go last in this, because I knew she was about to, she was about to drop some bombs on us. Like, like she was about to, she was about to do it. And she, she, she exceeded all expectations. Like the Lord, I agree. Let's do it. I am excited. Grad students, you know, folks looking for different book topics, UNC press, UGA press, Fordham university press, 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 send on an email to some of these people so we can get these books out here, y'all. Because I truly believe that, just purely based upon what these amazing scholars just brought to bear for us to, 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 to focus on, we can go for another hundred plus years of things that we need because Lord knows it's like Dr. Hillary Green said, Lincoln, all of them, we good. We good. We, we, we good over here. You know what I'm saying? Like there's some other folk who was living around that time too. You know what I'm saying? So 
And, and so I really appreciate all three of your responses here, because like I said, I think a lot of people who are listening to this conversation will really like be just writing, writing things down. And I really appreciate that. And so it, what it also does for me, too, is just try to think about the tradition at which we all come through and thinking about the tradition of black writers and the black thinkers and, and chroniclers of, of, of the African-American past at large. And like I said, I assembled y'all three here because I see y'all as can, as, as baton passers, right? As, uh, as folks who are paving this way in this new age, right? We got folks doing DH work. We got folks writing real publicly. We got some people on, on, on international stuff like the BBC. I see you dating Ohio over there. And so people out here doing the work in so many different registers. And so for me, this question means a lot. What does it mean for each of you to write within this tradition and specifically even about the African-American past? And so we're going to kick it to you, Dr. Hillary Green. For me, honestly, um, I'm grateful to be a part of this tradition. And I'm also grateful for Du Bois and acknowledging who his audience is. My audience has always been the Black community. The people who are in K-12 looking for books on people who looked like them and did good things but couldn't find them. For my parents who have read everything and were like, I wish more were like you. You write in a way that doesn't obscure what we did, but you elevate and provide more about what we did in a way. And you provide us the tools to counter the crazies and those who want to dismantle and dismiss even the history of the everyday people. Because we're not leaders, we're just working folk. And for me, that part of the Black tradition to learn, amplify, and bring to new audiences or even refresh for audiences who thought that their past were not important enough to be in the books for people to read and see themselves in that history and to feel empowered to move forward in the struggle. Amen to that. Amen to that. And and, and I really appreciate you speaking very pointedly to the fact that you're writing for Black communities, because I think that that's super duper empowering for a lot of folks like, you know, black grad students who, who are trying to think about audience as well as they're traversing um, graduate school like myself. And so I really appreciate that, uh, Dr. Green. And so I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, my Rutgers colleague, you know what I'm saying? We got a little tradition over there too, you know what I'm saying? Shout out to Dr. Deborah Gray White, you know what I'm saying? Aren't I a woman? We up in here. Woo woo. And so uh, Dr. Dr. Lawrence Sanders, what, what does this question mean for you? I mean, right. I mean, I, I think I was just really lucky enough to, to be an institution that really like emphasized black history, being trained as a, you know, a black historian in a very specific way. I mean, shout out to so many good professors, Deborah White, you know, for really kicking that off the ground there um, and for being such a good, you know, support system for a lot of black historians who came up there. And I really just, I love what Hillary said, because I think, you know, for me, it's really connecting to like the, the, the kid I was, you know, in South Carolina growing up and loving black history bowl and, you know, loving like the black history pageants at the church and like reading about history, but also at that time period, not really feeling connected to the history that I was being taught in school. Um, or, you know, even the history I was taught in college to be frank. Um, and I think that, you know, engaging with the black past in this way is deeply personal for me. 
And I always want to make, you know, as Hillary said, something that's accessible uh, coming from, you know, a black working class background and, you know, black folks uh, that are rural black folks and black folks who aren't college educated, um, like my parents aren't college educated, you know, that to make a history that they can read, they can understand and they can like and, you know, and share with their friends because they read history. You know, they read all the biographies. They read all the popular books out there. Um, and I want to be one of the books that they read. <laughs> you know, I want to yeah, I want that to be something that they can pass around and just to do, you know, to to be in service for the community is, you know, why I do it first and foremost. And I want to write something that's going to be useful for people, um, something that shows a path forward. Um, something that, you know, is respectful of, of ancestors and respectful of the tradition that comes before both academically and, you know, the, the activists that came before and my own, you know, my own family members who fall into those traditions as well. Um, it means a lot to do this work. So I do it carefully, right? Like this, I don't dabble, you know, in, in African-American history is what I do. So I think that, you know, as the field has become more popular, you know, we've seen some of that. Um, and I'm not calling anybody out, but I do think that, you know, mm-hmm. having a specific dedication to doing this work is what drives me, which makes me very careful in what I what I write and how I research and how I do it. Oh, so you saying that you ain't just out here writing about black folk to get that coin? Oh, 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 my, oh. was I not? Let, let, matter of fact, let me before I get into some trouble, I'm, I'm going to kick it to Dr. Robert Green. Uh, brother, brother, take it away. Well, I would I would say that being originally from Georgia and going to my Ph.D. program at University of South Carolina, I have felt this African-American history in my own life. Um, So for me to be able to write it is an opportunity for me to really. Converse with the ancestors, to talk to them, to to help folks understand what they thought, what they believe, you know, I think in, in particular when I see the faces of my students at Claflin, when I talk about African-American history, when they engage with the material, even just for a brief moment, I know then that I'm doing the right thing, that I've made the right choice with my life. Because what it means is that they are also understanding why this all matters. They are also understanding why it's so important to know African-American history. And for you to be able to write it, to teach it, to live it, I think is the greatest privilege in the world. I consider myself a very lucky person to be able to do this. At the same time, as Ashley and Hillary have said, I also feel it is a tremendous responsibility to do it and to do it well. Indeed. Indeed. And let me tell y'all, I am just so astounded and and amazed and, and blessed to have crossed paths with all three of these folks. And, you know, so, so Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders, I saw a little less than a year ago in Austin before the before everything shut down at yeah. the at uh, African American Intellectual History Society's uh, uh, annual conference and you know Dr. Hillary Green it's been a little minute I think I saw you the last time at um at OAH I think yeah. that was in Philadelphia was it uh-huh. <laughs> yes, Yeah it yeah and then uh Dr. Robert Green I believe the last time I saw you I was I think it was I was in South Carolina no no, it was a solid. It was a solid 2019 in, uh, in Charleston. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm just, and, and those were not the first time for me meeting these people, but for me, it, it means, this tradition means for me to set myself in this real quick is conversing and convening 
with my people, right? And not only my people because of, of, of race and, and, um, and work, but also people who I see as co-conspirators, people who, you know, we laugh with, we, you know, we don't even just talk only about history stuff, but we often talk about history stuff too. And being able to convene this space to me is a continuation of this black intellectual tradition that spans uh, continents and spans um, experiences and, and dialects and also um, uh, languages, but also we all have intimate experiences with the state of South Carolina. And so I think that is another reason why I'm, I'm glad that I brought everyone together. Um, and so for our last question here, we talk about tradition, but we also think about how we're going to extend it. So as a result, I'm interested to know what y'all, what, what y'all got working? What, when am I going to see y'all next on, on this platform? And so uh, we're going to kick that thing to uh, Dr. Robert Green to see you. Brother, what is you working on? Well, it's funny you should ask because this actually relates to the last time I was on your show. Um, uh, Dr. Tyler Perry of UNLV and I are working on an edited collection about the African-American history of the University of South Carolina. Uh, and we're hoping to get that out in the very near future. Um, we're getting the chapters together right now. So that's that's coming to a close. Um, I'm wor- at work on my own book project about African-Americans in the Democratic Party in the Deep South in the post-civil rights era, looking at how Democrats have come to need the Black vote in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and 90s to really stay competitive in the South and by extension the entire nation, a topic that's very important now. And of course, I have uh, several different article projects underway. The only one I'll talk about right now for the sake of time and brevity is I'm working on a project about Martin Luther King Jr. and his use of American memory, American history and his speeches to create an alternative black American memory of the past. And so what I've what I've been looking at is his speeches, his books, his articles, his essays, and how he uses black history to center black Americans in a, a broader American narrative in the 50s and 60s. See, man, this brother, that brother be working, man. I'd be telling people this man is probably the most humble dude. I gotta be like, dude, you actually doing the work, bro. You really doing the work, so so I'm excited to to have you on again uh, to to talk about all this work, and so I'm really appreciative of you coming on today. Um, so so we're gonna kick it to Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders. What what are you working on right now? Uh, I'm working on a couple things. Uh, first and foremost, my book manuscript that's based on my dissertation, uh, which looks at Black Civil War memory and Black engagement with the memory of the Civil War. Um, I particularly look at how the Civil War is a usable past for African Americans, uh, how it undergirds social movements, how contesting it means something politically for African Americans. Um, you know, that's sort of my principal project I'm working on now. I have a couple of article projects, likely an article coming out soon that I still need to revise uh, in, for the journal African American History on the memory of Denmark BC uh, through time. And, you know, the other one that I'll say is that, you know, I know uh, Dr. Hillary Green mentioned juke joints and, and, you know, and, you know, that kind of history. And I'm working on something about, uh, you know, sort of the black engagement with the underground economy, um, you know, black uses of land for illicit purposes uh, in, in rural uh, black low country in South Carolina. 
I'm hitting y'all, y'all can't see it, but I'm hitting that the Birdman hand that Birdman hand rub. That Birdman hand rub is I'm I'm excited about that because uh my family's from Beaufort, South Carolina. So I, I'm 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 wondering if I'm gonna see a surname or two that I recognize and some <laughs> names. So uh so uh let, let me let me tell my grandma about that too. She she'll be excited to hear that. Oh baby. They they got me up in the history books. I'm like, all right, girl, Bubba, I hope I don't see nothing. I don't, I, I don't want to see, but all right then. Um, so so I'm, I'm I'm super excited to hear uh, about this new work that you're doing and and you know extending this tradition. We're talking about a tradition going back to Rutgers. So 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 lovely seeing all the things that you're doing, and uh, just want to let you and everyone on here know that you. You the realest. You the realest. And also shout out to to Marlene Gaynor. She 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 gonna be up in here soon, you know, for, for introducing me to you and and keeping us together because that's that's one of the realest ones in the game too. Uh, right. so gotta put that out there too. And so we are gonna finish this out on Doctor No Reverend, but Doctor Hillary Green. What are you working on at this time on today? The several projects, uh, because of the events of summer 2020, I am working on several articles about UA's campus and the removal of the boulder and memory more broadly on campus and the history of slavery of the tours. So I have three pieces that I'm working on. And yes, I should have said no to some things, but it has to be out. <laughs> Understood. <laughs> The second is an edited volume with Andy Slap on uh, gathering historians to talk about this moment and to really talk about their, how the Civil War era helps to understand the summer of 2020, written for a, a popular audience and really embracing the personal is political, even by scholars who don't really write that way. So we're collecting the articles as we speak right now, and I will be helping to put that together and write the introduction on with Andy Slap, who's my editor at Fordham. And then the last is the book on African-American memory of the Civil War. And uh, I'm looking forward to Ashley's book because I think we need more of Black memory and especially the summer shown anything else. We need that. So I start off with Central Pennsylvania and my Civil War ancestors on my mother's side. So we start with the rural Black Pennsylvanians mm-hmm. and their construction of memory. And the first four chapters are on them and, and with even the Grand Army and the Republic in the Cumberland Valley uh, of Pennsylvania. So really centering, we need to talk about the Black rural North mm-hmm. and this memory construction. And in the last chapter, we'll end with UA. So I start with the family porch and bring in family porches, oral traditions, and we need to center those. And I end with the porch of Alabama in my work at UA or in campus history of slavery through the eyes of three enslaved drummers who served reluctantly for the campus. There we go. Goodness gracious. I told y'all. I told y'all. I done told y'all. When I bring people on here, I'm bringing goats greatest of all times if you don't catch the reference and you got them individually here assembled and i'm look i know this is a long podcast y'all but let me tell you you made it you made it to the end and let me tell you this is a conversation that everybody need to hear and i'm super excited for when it comes out and so once again 
Dr. Hillary Green, Dr. Ashley Lawrence Sanders, and Dr. Robert Green. I appreciate y'all so much for coming on to New Books in African American Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network, to discuss this monumental book from Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, Black Reconstruction in America. One of the best, like I said before, at the top, at the tippy top, probably the most impactful, influential, and all the superlatives ever in American letters, at least in the historian's realm. And so please, if y'all enjoyed this conversation, please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And if, 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 if you really like it, if you really, really, really like it, hit the subscribe button, please, because we want to make sure that we get this out to as many people as possible. And so I'm your host of New Books in African American Studies, Adam McNeil. Until next time, y'all, over and out.